0: Welcome to Build Big Ideas, this is Scott Snelling. And this is Jason Toth. We explore infrastructure. Hey Scott, how's it going? Hey
1: Jason, it's going great.
0: Great, great. Hey, I thought uh, for this episode today, we talk about Niagara Falls um, and, and bear with me here. I know when we talk infrastructure, what's, what does Niagara Falls have to do with infrastructure? But uh, as you know, my previous role working with the Corps of Engineers in Buffalo District, we work closely on Niagara Falls and with our Canadian partners. And one of the questions I received often was, uh, can you turn off Niagara Falls? Like, Is there a switch somewhere that you could just switch off the water? And I always thought it was a funny question, but I, I think it's it might be a fun deep dive into um, what all is involved with Niagara Falls? Is it a natural feature or is it part of the built environment? And I think the answer to that question is actually this interesting interweaving of the natural and built environments. It brings in international politics and it brings in the different uses between recreational and industrial and commercial, and it just interweaves them all into this interesting picture. And so I thought what maybe we do is we'd zoom out just for background and we just look at the Great Lakes because Niagara Falls is part of that hydrologic system. So you got all five Great Lakes are naturally hydrologically connected. and. So if you looked at the Great Lakes at all connected and so that means in theory, a drop of water that say, happens to fall in far western Lake Superior could make its way all the way to the Atlantic Ocean and that you know be flowing uh, across Superior through the Straits of Mackinac and depending on the currents maybe stop in Lake Michigan then running the long dimensions of Huron and Lake Erie and Lake Ontario by then finally making its ending it's like over 2000 mile journey down the St. Lawrence River. Um, and so. It's not only important for the hydrologic cycle, but when you think of modern-day navigation for recreation and commercial, which is probably something we could talk about in the future, this is all connected. But right now, we're just focusing on water. If you looked at a Great Lake system profile, which we'll put a a picture or diagram up on the on our blog, sort of shows that there's a gradient there, because of course, for water to flow, in most cases, without assistance, it's got to be through gravity, and Lake Superior is uh, right around 600 and then you, you work your way through um, Saint, the St. Saint Mary's River and the Straits of Mackinac. And that now has a lock there, lock and dam. However, naturally there are rapids there. And then it's generally flat with very little change in elevation all the way until you get to Niagara Falls. And so while there's about a 25 foot elevation change there on the St. Mary's River, you've got you know several hundred feet of drop for Niagara Falls. And that's, that's imp- really due to historic, deep historic impacts of water erosion on varying geology that's inherent with the Niagara Escarpment. But I don't think we'll get too far into the geology here. Um, but what that creates then is this potential energy, a tremendous amount of potential energy. And very early on, uh, th- that was realized, that was acknowledged as like, hey, this is a really um, strong potential for industry. And so as early as the 1750s, which I was amazed at when I dug into this a little bit more, a, a guy by the name of Daniel Joncaire, he built a small canal that diverted a little bit of water and put a water wheel in there. And so he used the Niagara River, which feeds Niagara Falls, uh, to power a sawmill. And that's this is pre the founding of our nation, you <laughs> think about it. Uh, if you fast forward another 100 years, that, that activity continued, more and more sawmills, more and more uh, grain mills. And mid 1850s you got your first hydroelectric power plant which i don't know for sure but might be one of the first in the nation um because with, with niagara fall we talk flow over the niagara falls This is uh, highest level of flow of any waterfall in the united states um so it's it's a large amount of potential energy and that was recognized early um and, and then you can see pictures circa 1900s 1903. i saw one recently that's got numerous mills all lined up right there along niagara falls um you can see there, there are a million operation going on, there are discharges, and there's a whole bunch I'm sure you don't even see in that picture. But so you've got all this, uh, all this industrial activity that's starting to build up around there. Um, and there's a balance here. And um, that balance really wasn't struck at that time. And they continued the industrial growth and that's where you start to see construction of hydraulic tunnels and canals and then power stations start to develop both, both sides of the border. And when you start to combine this with some of the innovations in electricity, uh, alternating current in the same time period, uh, transmission lines, power transformers, all this really came together in a large scale in that period of about 50 years. And that proximity to the falls, that created like all these ancillary benefits, especially for Buffalo. And so in Buffalo, you had one of the first alternating current central stations operated, commercially in the United States was there in Buffalo, thanks to the falls in the late 1800s, around 1886. Um, and you also had the first electricity transmitted from the falls, um, for a streetcar system. And then you have the Westinghouse power plant by Adams power station. Uh, you got Nikolai Tesla's in that same area, thinking about alternating current with transformers. Um, first place, I think it was transmitted over two, 20 miles. Uh, so in, I think Buffalo can even claim to be the first major city with large scale street lighting. And, uh the first electric streetlights were in Indiana, but I think there was a smaller town, that was Wabash initially. So you, you've got all this activity surrounding electrical power generation all generated from the falls. And even as recent as, as 61, when the Niagara Falls hydroelectric plant went online, at that time, it was the largest hydroelectric power facility in the Western world. So all this is recognition of the potential energy that's inherent in the falls. But as all that grew, you started to um, diminish the natural beauty and have an unbalanced uh, have an unbalanced perspective on what the falls offers as a site because and so maybe it's worth now just talking through orienting the falls and you know, we'll put a picture up as well. It sort of shows there are really three falls inherent in Niagara Falls. One is the Horseshoe Falls, largest. It's the U-shaped that uh, spans both the U.S. and Canadian side. There's the Bridal Veil and the American Falls, which are both on the American side only. And um, so what, what happened is over this time in early 1900s, they started to realize that if we don't do something and we sort of largely, that's Canada and United States, then this whole area will be just be fully developed for commercial based on its potential. And so in 1909, the Boundary Waters Treaty was struck and that, that governed not only Niagara Falls, but it governed all of the different international boundary waters. And so when you think about it, there are waters all the way across the Northern boundary with Canada that cross over. And I think there are somewhere in the area of nine or 12 watersheds that are there. And so so this treaty essentially established a governing body an international joint commission with representation in the United States and Canada. And they work together for all that water that crosses over from a quantity and quality perspective, make sure there's uh, both sides agree on its management. And so Niagara Falls being one of those, as part of this treaty, they said, well, we want to keep the natural beauty of Niagara Falls while balancing its use for commercial. and. That then led to a variety of different developments. One was that they took most of that low use, and at this point, this was mostly gonna be hydrologic use. So those mills and whatnot, they had sort of expired and they had been overcome by different electric or power companies and a couple of different efforts that have all eventually progressed to the point where now there are um, several underground tunnels that convey water to hydroelectric plants on both sides of the border. There's two on the U.S. side. They run under the city of Niagara Falls uh, and they go to the Lewiston and Robert Moses' plants. And there's three on the Canadian side that supply the Canadian Niagara and the, the Sir Adam Beck uh, generation plants. And so that's, you don't even really see them. And that's the fascinating part about this. If you go to see Niagara Falls now, there's seemingly no commercial and industrial development that's visible there. And what how, so how this works now is that they're, intakes for those hydroelectric plants with these large tunnels are way upstream of Niagara Falls. They're much further up the Niagara River. And so just, just for clarity, the Niagara River is what connects Lake Erie to Niagara Falls, and then Niagara Falls feeds Lake Ontario. So every bit of water that would move through the upper four, or the, you know, the upper four, upper three lakes, and then Lake Erie to, on its way to Ontario, goes over Niagara Falls. So we're talking large flow numbers here. Um, I was sort of trying to work some back rough envelope uh, math, but essentially when it's at its daytime peak flows, minimum peak flows going over the the crest of all of Niagara Falls, it's uh, 168,000 cubic meters, which is very difficult to visualize. But the way to maybe picture that is that would fill two football stadiums every minute. So if you took two large football stadiums, you have enough water coming over Niagara Falls that every minute you'd fill two of them in volume. That's the kind of volume we're talking about. So that's a lot of water, but what's going over the falls is really only 50 to 20, 25 to 50% of the f- overall volume that's flowing through the Niagara river at that point. The other half to three quarters is being diverted. So you see this fall, and, and often the, the flow of the falls is driven is volume is driven by the lake levels. Uh, water on the great lakes right now is very high. So there's historic highs across several of the great lakes, including Lake Erie there's a lot of water going over the falls, but what you see going to falls seems like a tremendous amount, but 50% or more of what would have gone over the falls is being diverted for hydroelectric power. And what, the reason why you don't really see that is there through this IJC structure, based on the treaty that I mentioned for boundary waters, there's a limit on how much can be diverted to ensure that the natural beauty of the falls is preserved. And so during the tourist season, which is, is that um, spring to... Uh, fall time frame, you've got 100, uh, a cap. You cannot divert so much water such that the crest of the falls is broken. So you must have continuous coverage of veil, if you will, an unbroken crest going over the falls.
1: Yeah. So that, that's a conscious decision. You're saying if 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 we wanted to economically optimize, we'd just run the falls dry and stick all the water through uh, through hydropower generation to generate electricity.
0: In theory, I, I don't know that there's enough capacity within, and, and practically that you would be able to divert everything. If there's enough, um, especially when you have high water, when you have high water on the lakes that they, the, the plants are oftentimes, the generating plants are running at full capacity and, and these are pump storage. So in, in the modern era, these have been converted over time to pump storage so that again, they have that flexibility to store essentially pump water up into uh, reservoirs that are elevated and at peak times, uh, bring that power on board. Um, We'll get too deep into that, but they are there's pump storage associated on both sides of the border. So I don't know if there's enough capacity in the tunnels to run it all the time. But if the water was low enough, yes. And maybe it wouldn't run them dry, but it would definitely interrupt the beauty of the falls and sort of break the crest, if you will. So that you would be evident to be like, wow, there seems to be less water going to the falls. Right now it's very hard to you know, unless unless you're somebody that monitors it to determine oh, there is there isn't. But so but the thing that's interesting is at night, that's when much more water is diverted because you can't really see it as well. And so um, so if I said, you know, hundred, uh, about a hundred thousand cubic feet per second. So, and we were talking cubic feet per second. So that's around 2,800 cubic meters per second. That's the limit. You can't, you, you can't have less than that going over the falls. That's what's required to keep the unbroken crest. So power companies are allowed to divert up to that point where it's impacted, but at night it's only 50,000. So it's half as much will go over the falls. And again, you can't see that because of the dark. Um, so it's managed both seasonally when there's most tourists there and day and night and to help in this. And so A lot of times you're at the whims of nature based on lake levels. And so we want to create predictability infrastructure-wise for these power companies as well as for tourists coming to the falls. So in in 1954, and and they updated the treaty specifically for Niagara Falls in 1950, because this is when they really said, "Hey, this is when we're going to strike this balance. This is when these numbers were established for the flows across. But to to assist in this, they built this international control structure. And so technically it's a weir structure that has, and it doesn't extend all the way across the Niagara River. But if you look at some, aerial imagery, you'll see upstream of the falls this linear structure that extends roughly half to two thirds across the Niagara River. And it has the effect of acting as a compensating works that forms a pool. So anytime you impede naturally flowing water, typically the response is for that water to pool upstream like most any dam you can envision. Well, even though this is not a full, it's a weir structure with uh, gates that can open and close and doesn't fully span the Niagara, it still has the effect of creating a pool. It's called the uh, Chippewa Grass Island Pool. And what that does though, is that pool it pulls the water back far enough where the intakes for the hydroelectric intakes are. And so while you have a pool there, that helps to create a more efficient and sustained um, and consistent flow of water through the hydroelectric uh, conveyance means, you know, underground getting to those, those power plants. And so that's in place. It helps to distribute the water a little bit more evenly across Horseshoe Falls, uh, American Falls, and um, Bridesvale Falls. And so that's in place. And you, you can see that, again, those pictures online. We'll post a couple. Uh, that pretty much we pulled from offline that shows that. Um, so that, that's in place. And, and um, so this, along with the treaty change in, in 1950 is what has gotten to this point where we were able to achieve this balance of that we're at right now. Um, so, so we've said, well, in theory, maybe it's possible to turn up falls, but we never have. Yet somebody might cite, well, in 1969, I believe, I've seen pictures and one of the falls is totally dry. And so it's not necessarily the act of a switch, how that was achieved. And the Corps of Engineers actually did that work is they put a, a large coffer dam, so a stone and earth coffer dam, and blocked off just the American falls, not the horseshoe. So essentially allowed the water to divert around horseshoe falls. And they did that, the purpose for that was to study erosion and sort of establish a baseline survey of how, what was the rate of erosion and you know, what, what can we predict based off of that? And there's some pretty interesting um, conclusions off of that. And so while, uh, so, you know, obviously the water's flowing over the falls at massive amounts, high rates, so you can imagine erosion is occurring um, and before that, that uh, erosion was occurring bef- before as they studied this, it was occurring at uh, three feet per year, which I thought was pretty rapid. So that means that the falls are cutting back, moving towards the mouth of Lake Erie at three feet per year. What they did is during this, when I, when, and I, don't, I don't know that this is the Horseshoe Falls, I'm speaking mainly on American, because that's where I saw the data coming off of uh, when they dewatered it with this coffer cofferdam. Um, so that would mean that, and, and so if you sort of uh, extend that impact back in history, maybe 10,000 years and use that rate of just assuming that rate that it had moved over the 10,000 years prior almost 6.8 miles. So the Niagara Falls that we see now would have looked existed in a different form and shape, but still existed as a waterfall up by Lewiston, 6.8 miles downstream of the falls now. And then if you were to extend that time, say 50,000 years to the future, Niagara Falls would exist, but it'd be, or maybe not, it'd be Lake Erie. It would have reached the mouth of Lake Erie and um, not, not exist. And so, so that was an interesting, I, I hadn't really, it's sort of a fun thought experiment to sort of picture what it would be like, but obviously it's changing over time, all terrain does. Um, and uh, so, so they, they did this dewatering, they did this study and then they removed the coffer dam and that's the falls that you see now. And so, so it wasn't necessarily a switch that they took, it was just a, for a purposeful stopping. But I did look into the history a bit and I, I did see that there was a time when there was, that falls did totally dry up, but it was due to an ice jam. And so it was a low water event in the winter, lower flow. And there was a, almost uh, I think it was a 40 hour or so, and this is mid 1800s where there's an ice jam that actually slowed it to a trickle.
1: Yeah, that is interesting. You know, so this is talking a little bit about the, the water flow across the falls, but for navigation, I think there's the, the Welland canal is the right. route, right? And I, I'm. Do you have any um, thoughts on how I don't know the exact. My guess is the Welland Canal predates the agreement that you're talking about right now, and the the Welland Canal goes through Canada. It does. Um, so you need to to go from one lake to the next. You actually have to um, go go through this Canadian canal. Um, have you had any interactions that, with that canal?
0: That's right, and that's so for we're talking again, folks, to mainly on the water flow and the hydrologic connection and how it's tied to the um, hydropower infrastructure and industry. But for navigation of the Great Lakes, the Wellington Canal is the bypass around the fall. So if you're going to, uh, and we could talk again, this I think would be a really fascinating look at how the Great Lakes and navigation support industry in that area. I think it's pr- a little bit more well known on the coast and east and west coast, but Great Lakes has got a you know linearly longer coast than both uh, east and west. And as a, a, a huge internal and, and some ocean, um, ocean going nav that supports a variety of industries there. But if you're gonna if you're gonna uh, navigate, so if you have ocean going, and, and over a very large majority of the nav in the Great Lakes is internal, so it's internal to the, those lakes. But there's a good 10% 15% that does navigate through the St. Lawrence Seaway and then uses the Wellington Canal to access Lake Erie and then the ports beyond and the other the other uh, three Great Lakes.
1: I think a lot of it's iron ore, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, that internal shipping, a lot of it's iron ore.
0: I, iron ore is probably the largest by uh, by volume, but there's definitely uh, salt. There's some internal goods that are also bulk bulk quantity goods that are. And I, I don't know that the year that the Wellington Canal was built. Uh, we'll, well, definitely we'll we'll talk the nav part of this, because that'll be will be a really interesting conversation. I know we both experienced that, so. but Yeah, really. And so I, I was thinking to myself, like, what did they do? Because they also when they had the, the Falls deep Water, they did some engineering, some actual hardening and deliberate efforts to prevent erosion really of, of the falls. And I thought, what, what can you really do to, for that? And and it was just the things aimed at slowing, not stopping. So there was faults in there and they they put some underwater weirs to direct some of the more damaging current stuff. They, they put uh, tried to strengthen the top of the falls mechanically bolting, shoring stuff up. So I, I, now this was in 69. So we just celebrated the 50th anniversary of that particular dewatering in the falls. I'm curious how that has held up. and. But it, supposedly, in what, based on what they've been measuring, based off the baseline they established, is that while previously the falls were eroding at a rate of three feet per year, that has um, been reduced to one foot per year,
1: huh. thanks to those engineering and hardened efforts. So. It's interesting to me, I'm a little bit more familiar with uh, Upper St. Anthony Falls in, in downtown yeah. Minneapolis. And it, there's a lot of parallels in the history of, of the falls, right? They kind of start off with uh, l- powering lumber mills, you know, in the... 1718, eight, I guess 1700s in the in, in in the case here. You said for Niagara Falls, I think it was mid mid 1800s when uh, St. Anthony Falls in Minneapolis, and then they kind of, you know, that's sort of the Wild West at one point. And a and a waterfall is a great source of power, and it just draws people in for to that yeah. source of power. And anybody who's there and who can harness it gets it, and and it, they end up with a weird history. And then the the erosion over time eventually causes troubles i know it's in anthony falls they had um tunnels that collapsed in on the city and all kinds of crazy stuff and they dewater it and reinforce the falls and and then it, it becomes kind of more institutionalized over time but they, they have really interesting histories and they, they're a place of natural beauty and and power that that uh benefits industry and society so they're they're really fascinating sites it is and
0: i, and I already cited one picture that i recall but it had uh, maybe seven or eight factory structures that were perched on a precipice. Because, <laughs> right. I mean, if you've been to Niagara Falls, the sheer sound you can f- of the water coming across is very, um, I mean, you can feel it in your, in your bones, in your belly when you're standing by. And so I think of somebody who is early on, uh, you know, a grain mill operator or sawmill operator or owner who says, I'm going to put my mill right here on the falls and how they actually went about that and, and, and accounted for fluctuation of water levels on the Niagara River and not all of a sudden you wake up and your factory's gone because the water level went up and there's all this you know, tremendous amount of flow coming across and being familiar with St. Anthony. And, and that's a, a little bit of more of a micro example because it's, it's a smaller, smaller flow, but same was played out and you can just see I mean, there's, there's half dozen factories lined up right there on this cliff with, with the evidence of the water wheel on the external, it's driving this. And the, the discharge, the water is just coming, kind of falling off of this cliff, just immediately adjacent to American Falls. And uh, yeah, that seems very daring to me. I'm just trying to picture. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's really cool. And it, it, this is, and, and so this, I mean, Niagara Falls is a very large example in it, it, its early in the history of the nation, because once it was discovered, it drew, as you said, it drew people to it. Um, and there's, there's a lot of other supporting aspects to it. I mean, there's even a, a chain that they now stretch uh, the new york power authority is responsible for it but they stretch it across most if not all of not quite all but uh, a large portion of the niagara river right at the mouth of you know the, the entrance or where, where the lake erie necks down to the niagara river and they put a chain there and it's an ice boom and it's it is put in place specifically to keep the ice pack focused in lake erie because lake erie is the shallowest of the five great lakes and it does freeze a majority, uh, almost the entire thing most years. Um, and so that that ice, it'll start to break up and it'll start to flow down the Niagara River and cause damage to the shoreline and whatnot and jams, but it'll also damage the intakes and imp- impact the intakes for the uh, for the hydropower plants. And um, and hence, I have mentioned that almost 200 years ago, that was the only time that naturally the falls went dry was during the ice jam. Um, and so they've put this ice boom up there for many years now in order to prevent that. So there's all these different aspects that feed to this um, this, but the Niagara, I guess Niagara Falls has not frozen solid. It's never totally, totally frozen. Portions of it, I heard uh, or read that uh, American Falls at one point froze, and portions have frozen of it, but not the whole thing. It's never frozen. So,
1: that's huh, interesting. No ice climbing the Niagara Falls, I guess. Uh, I don't freezes. know that would be. A... <laughs> that'd be bold. <laughs> what about barrels? I remember when I was a kid. I think I went to some IMAX uh, at the science museum. What did be like? like uh, where they were showing. A barrel the, over the falls. I mean, that used to be a thing, right? That people would. Some people lived. I don't know. They had all kinds of weird stories. Yeah, do you I, have any do. You have any barrel over the over no, the falls stories? I don't. So I don't, And I'm
0: not as familiar. right? <laughs> I, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think. anybody that's interested, that'd be a fun thread to pull top on Wikipedia, I'm sure there's a quick summary of those successful and unsuccessful attempts uh, at that. Now, I, when they did dewater the falls in 69, you can imagine that there's a lot of interest of what are they gonna find down on the right? And it's not this clean. I mean, there's a bunch of rubble and debris and rocks, you know, natural debris at the bottom, but they did find some cars and some uh, evidence of the industrial landscape that had existed there for almost two 200 um, years. They did find a couple of bodies of those that either had committed suicide or were missing. Um, uh, you know at, at the base of the falls it's, it's probably what you would expect because it like I guess it had never been uh, dewatered um, previous to that or at least investigated that way so no I, I don't have a lot of background or knowledge on the attempts over the falls but <laughs> yeah it, it, it would be a high risk situation especially if you see the pictures if you, if you were to go online I, mean, be, I think I have one that shows a good good representation of American falls dewatered um, but it, it's tremendously rocky at the base of that it would I can't imagine thinking you were going to survive going over the at least American falls, but even horseshoe falls. Um,
1: yeah. I'm, I'm curious about the, uh, the you're, I forget what you called it, but the, the hydropower is being used to pump. They're using water to turn electricity to pump other water to places that they then use. Could, could right. you explain <laughs> that a little bit more? I mean, I'm familiar in general with the sort of um, water pumped battery um, scenario, there's probably a better terminology for that. Um, but why they're using the falls and the power from the falls in that way, I, I'm, I don't quite get it.
0: So, uh, so it's, it's driven by a couple of things and part of it is matching the demand supply and demand. And, and then part, part of it is, uh, from a power company where, um, the revenue generation, because, uh, the way that electricity, I'm not a as as Canada; I'm more familiar in the United States power, Electricity is priced based on demand, and so uh, higher demand peak periods in during the daytime, which you can imagine, which are typically in the morning and the evening, there's higher pricing for it at that time. And so, uh, hydroelectric plants, a couple of advantages. Well, we talked briefly, I think, in a previous episode, that you can generate power really two fundamental ways. One is through photovoltaics, solar. Another is by turning the turbine, and and, um, and we're talking you know alternating current, and, and so. This, in this case, we're using the potential energy of the water for hydroelectric power to turn a turbine. Um, so you, the nice thing about hydroelectric, not only of its sustainability principles, but it also can be started up almost instantly. If you were to compare it to the heating up process for coal or natural gas, uh, combustion, uh, steam generated, turning of a turbine, that takes a while to spin that up. Whereas if you were to open gates, the right gates in a hydroelectric plant, that Turbines to start spinning. I mean, that, that's it's almost not instantaneous, but very quick, especially relative to the other methods. So you have that advantage, um, but to match the demand, you don't want to dump power. You want, as a power provider, hydroelectric, you you want to maximize every cubic meter of water that comes through. So you're constantly balancing, right? How do I store energy? And this is one of our classic challenges right now is energy storage. But one of the ways is, is through potential energy. And so that's what you're doing is it is like a giant battery. You're storing the energy. Now it's less in a way yeah, you, lose, you lose power um, because of inefficiencies of pumps and, and the system, right? So it's not 100% transferred into stored energy that potential power or potential energy is lost are these reservoirs
1: that that they're storing it in and are they at a higher elevation than the than the pool or um, they they, they're like a lake at a higher elevation or right
0: so it's a it's an elevated reservoir and so for like on the usi the robert moses uh station is is where that's that's the generating station but then the lewiston pump generating plant is where there's a series of pumps that do do the pumping into the uh, pump storage reservoir, which is elevated. I don't know if it's at the same elevation as the pool, but it's definitely elevated out of the Niagara River, um, essentially at that index location along the Niagara River. And so, yeah, so that's exactly what they do, is as as much power as they can put on the grid at that time, they're using that, any excess power they're using to pump water into these elevated reservoirs. And that's storing that energy so that at peak times they can run and add more power to the grid if needed at at a higher rate. Or just save the energy. Should perhaps the water levels go down, or they remember they're trying to also balance. They can only divert so much water, and so if they want to run full on, and they want to they want to bring in peak power, most power they can at nine a.m. That's also in peak tourist season. They might not be able to pull it directly from the Niagara River to do it. They're going to need to do that part the Niagara River apart from that elevated storage coming out of the reservoir. So they're constantly monitoring and balancing so that they have another means.
1: But it's energy storage. That's pretty cool. I didn't know anything. I had no idea that there was a, I knew that there were um, the the power plants and I'd heard of the Robert Moses um, hydro plant, but the Lewiston pump generating plant, I had no idea. That's pretty, pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, it's really fascinating. I think, I mean, most operations hydroelectric wise now are, have some, some component, especially if you're building it now, you definitely have a pump storage component to it because how difficult it is to generate uh, storage, store. how difficult is it to store electrical energy? And so, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, when we were talking before about the solar power and how cheap it's gotten, but the the big problem is, you know, storage costs are not coming down. So I guess yeah. I guess any place you have a hydroelectric plant, you probably also have an opportunity to do pump storage in, in yep. some way. So that's a that's pretty cool. Yeah. So it's a deep dive into an area that
0: at surface doesn't isn't that complex, but has a lot of aspects to it. So it's really neat the intersection between the the built environment, natural environment, and how, and how over time our, how we've managed it has evolved, you know, and that's in cooperation with our Canadian partners. Um, so it's US and Canada working together because it's a shared resource.
1: Cool. Thanks for, uh, thanks for telling us about Niagara Falls and, uh, and what it would be like if it went dry or when it yeah. does. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for joining us for the Build Big Ideas podcast. For show notes, please see buildbigideas.com. To ask us questions or suggest a podcast guest or topic, you can contact us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or by email. Contact info on the website. Please consider signing up for our mailing list to receive a short monthly email with links to the best of what we are reading and writing. Please rate the Build Big Ideas podcast on Apple iTunes to help us find new interested listeners. If you enjoy Build Big Ideas, please tell a friend or two. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Please do not consider anything discussed to be professional, engineering, or investment advice. Views discussed here are personal and not representative of employers or any other organizations that the hosts or guests are associated with.